When the metaphorical jail door closes, slams, and we are confined to our homes, where do we turn to stay sane during this time of crisis? Well, one way is to look for our comfort food, our media comfort food, in the form of podcasts, movies, and TV shows. This is a podcast where artists and celebrities, journalists, tell us how they stay sane during this global pandemic. I'm pleased to welcome Michael Goldfarb. Uh, many of you have heard of him. Uh, he's excellent reporting from London, where he's a um, NPR bureau chief. Uh, he's also a correspondent for BBC. Uh, he appears regularly on BBC shows and uh, makes documentaries for the BBC, one we'll hear about very soon on the um, Kent State shooting. He's also uh, a podcaster, just like myself. He's, um, his podcast is called The First Rough Draft of History, F-R-D-H, and it's an excellent production. And uh, he's also the author of two. Because it was a, such an exceptional conversation, we're going to have it in two parts. The first part will deal a little bit more with his experience of London under quarantine and um, also his documentaries. The second part will delve more into his choices, his media choices. I first asked uh, Michael how he started his career in London. I had, um, I spent a junior year abroad. I think that's the way a lot of people get hooked on England. I spent a junior year abroad um, at Oxford, and I didn't matriculate. Uh, very keen, clear to say, I was I'm not a graduate of Oxford, but I did spend a year in Oxford, and I had a kind of glimpse of privileged end of life in England. And I ended up going back to America and I finished my undergraduate years and had worked in the theater for a long time and found my way to journalism late. And I wasn't really going anywhere in America, in New York City, uh, as a journalist. I had had a brief spot of work at the Washington Post and had a nice clip file, but I wasn't really getting anywhere as a freelance. And the one thing I did remember from my time as uh, on my year abroad was that in London, there's a lot of opportunities for freelance journalism that, that don't exist in New York. And I liked it. I mean, I, I like England. I like primarily the way people use the English language. And I met a woman, because that helps. That's and nice. she had a British passport. And so we were, I was in my 30s, she was in her 20s, and let's move to London, which is where her parents were from. That's how she had the passport. So we moved to London open-ended, and that was 35 years ago, and I'm still here. So I obviously like it. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't really start working full-time as a real news journalist till after I was here and for NPR. Well, that's uh, you know, I was always interested in, in the backstory. So, um, but we'll we'll get on. I probably will end up editing this because we'll probably go on for a long time. But uh, I I just wanted my, my own curiosity because <laughs> uh, I I sort of made the trip the other way. I I uh, grew up in England and then moved to the states. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see it done the other way. But yeah, both, you know, I, I, it's easy to do. When you're young, and uh, particularly if there's a woman involved, and you're more, <laughs> if you like the country, and then you like the, the 
woman, uh, that, that works out very well. Um, That's the way it goes. Um, so, but, you know, quarantine is the big issue. It's on everybody's minds. Um, you are watching it from a, uh, uh, probably a professional perspective as well as uh, living through it. Um, how do you think, um, what do you think Americans don't understand about the quarantine situation in London? Well, let's put, put it another way, uh, or England more broadly. Um, put it another way. Um, what are some differences between the way uh, the, the response to the pandemic, I guess, between England and America? Well, up until the last three or four days, the difference would be the last week. The difference is this. People who, have, who don't know London at all won't understand just how much the city sprawls. And it, it's, it's basically 32 miles long from its westernmost point to its easternmost point. It's about 20 miles north-south at its widest. And... So when you see pictures of shut down London, what you're seeing are, is the center of town, the West End, the tourist haunts, the city of London, which is the financial district. And that's pretty much shut down. You won't find many people out on the street. The streets themselves are empty. There's no rush hour. It's terrific. But you know the population of the city before the pandemic struck was about 9 million. And to give you some perspective on the growth of London, when I moved back here in 1985 to live permanently, it was a little under 7 million. And it grew to close to 8 million by the turn of the millennium. And then the city just exploded. I, I, have, I mean, it just became the most important global city in not just Europe, but actually the entire English-speaking world. People come from all over. You know, and you have north of 9 million people living in the city now. It's really crowded, but it sprawls. And so in the center part of town where people work, it's completely empty. But where we live, it's been like a month of Sundays. And the weather has been spectacularly good for the three and a half weeks since the country was officially shut down. And so people are out. And one of the local parks in my borough, the borough of Hackney, they actually had to shut it because so many people were going out because the weather is so nice. And Lawrence, you're, you're from this country. So you know that if you have uh, a nice day, everybody feels compelled to go outside because they're few and far between. But we've had this run of weather where We've had day after day after day of glorious sunshine. And it's utterly perverse to have to stay in, you know, and you do. But also the other thing about London that I think people who know the city a bit will say, oh, there's Hyde Park and there's Regent's Park. But everywhere in London, there is a park, a decent sized green space. And people from the neighborhoods flock to these spots and so it's shut down but it's not that shut down uh, if you take my meaning yes uh, the other big difference of course is that while 
you know, the same joined at the hip right wing uh, media com- commentators have joined in the chorus to, you know, time to reopen. Let's reopen. Even though, the, you know, this country has had a shocking number of deaths, considering how much lead time they had to prepare for it. Um, we were among the last countries in New York to start getting hit. And the number of deaths are just shocking because nobody paid attention to what was happening in Italy or Spain or France, or for that matter, in China, where it, where it all started. The one thing we don't have are people with M15 and AK-47 <laughs> assault weapons um, down at City Hall or at Parliament uh, demanding the right to go to work or to do whatever the hell they like, really, in that libertarian way, and infect as many people as they like because, hey, freedom. Right. We don't have that here. Yeah, that's good. Uh, am I right to believe that the London Tube is still running, just as the New York subways are still running? Is that... Is that... Yeah, well, the, the Tube is still running, um, shortened service, uh, it's awkward because, I mean, how do you find the balance? If you were in a normal service, well, they couldn't. I mean, one of the interesting things is that uh, a third of the staff was self-quarantining even before the city was officially shut down. They either had contracted it themselves or someone they knew had contracted it and so on. The problem is that if you shut down the service, that forces people, there's fewer trains, more people getting in the trains. But the last two weeks, it's been completely empty. And I watch buses go by when I take my daily walk. And if they have a passenger, that's it. That's really quite extraordinary. And again, it goes back to the sprawling nature of the city. Really, you do have to use public transport to get around in this town. And so if you're in a job that requires you... You're an essential, essential worker. An essential yeah. worker. If, if, and, you know, as we... The similarity on this side of the Atlantic and, and in America, in New York in particular, essential workers um, at hospitals aren't just the doctors, you know, the nurses, the support staff, many of whom are not particularly well paid, many of whom come from the minority communities, they've got to go to work. They don't have a car, and they need to have public transport up and running for them. And so that, that's a similarity. How has it changed your work? You know, because as a journalist, I guess you, you're, you're familiar with the idea of, of going out and meeting people, taking coffee and so on. And uh, how has it affected you personally? Um, well, it's in a very per- perverse way. It hasn't, it hasn't affected me at all. I'm a freelance journalist and I work from home. So, you know, the big effect has been that my, uh, my 14 and a half year old kid is around all the time, which is slightly distracting, but, um, you know, it's like, during the big Christmas breaks or Easter breaks, which we've just come through here. And so I'm, I'm kind of used to working when my kid is around. But the big thing for me was I was uh, in the midst of setting up an hour-long program to mark the 50th anniversary of the Kent State Massacre 
when four students were shot dead by the Ohio National Guard at uh, Kent State University. And I had this trip set up. I was meant to fly, I was flying to Pittsburgh and then driving from Pittsburgh to Kent, which is a two hour drive. And I was going to spend a couple of days there and I was going to go to some other places in Ohio connected to this and then drive to Washington, D.C. and then fly back from Washington, D.C. It was a 12 day trip. And of course, that was not possible from the middle of March. It was increasingly unlikely. And then uh, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio shut the state down. He's a Republican, by the way. And he shut the state down. Actually, I think maybe even before, maybe even before some Democratic governors shut their states down because he believed uh, the science and he looked at the data that was coming in from all over the world and realized that he just had to send everyone home. So they shut down Kent State. And then in the end, British Airways canceled my flight anyway. So I've had to do that via the internet using a different, by the way, um, app than you're going to, than you're using with me here to get reasonably, uh, the piece is finished now. and, And I have to say the interviews via the web, they're not quite studio quality and they're not as intimate as they might have been if I could have conducted them face to face. But they're pretty good and the pieces is good. So that, but it was a big change and a lot of scrambling to get it right. Where can we see this art documentary? You can, you can not see it because it's for radio, oh, okay. but you can listen to it. <laughs> you can listen to it. It, it, it will be transmitted on BBC Radio 4 on Saturday evening, May 2nd. The actual 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings is May 4th. And then the BBC streams all of its programming um, once it's been transmitted in the traditional over-the-air way. So from basically Sunday, May 3rd, you can listen to it. You can... Find it at the BBC, searching my name and Kent State, or the title, which is Four Dead in Ohio. Right. You use the Neil Young song. A lot. Still, still a, a powerful song. Uh, I mean, I don't know of a, a pop song, a pop song, but use, use that word advisedly, but a, a song that has uh, resonated through the years as much as that one. So good choice. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I feel um, like now we can get into some of the cultural uh, stuff that's been occupying you. Uh, Any way you want to start with books, movies, uh, whatever uh, is is on your mind right now. Okay. Well, there's one of the <laughs> one of the the thing that things about making Four Dead in Ohio which is the name of the documentary, is I spent an inordinate amount of time searching the Internet for covers of the song. because I And I use a lot of them. And it's amazing how it's a really si- simple song. And for anybody who's listening to this, who finds their way to this podcast, will know the song. And, you know, the story behind it is very interesting. Uh, the shootings took place on May 4th. And on May 25th, on May 25th, um, 
Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young went into the studio to record it, record the song. He, I think he wrote it on the day. He, he just saw news footage of what had happened at Kent State, and he was outraged by it. And he, Neil Young is the king of the hook, and he, he sat down with his guitar, and he came up with a, a very nice hook and wrote a very, very simple uh, lyric, and they recorded it. Okay became a hit. And then the following year, he did a solo concert in Ontario, in Toronto, at Massey Hall. Did all of the stuff he'd been recording with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, and also with um, his band. And But he did an acoustic set. And uh, it's even better than the Crosby, Stills, and Nash version. And then the Isley Brothers... I don't know if you even yes. remember yeah, the Eyes Brothers. Mm -hmm. They did a version. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, very, very gospel-y. I mean, the, the song is incredibly adaptable. And then there's a guy I'd never even heard of, which shows my ignorance, uh, who does covers. His name is Ben Harper. And he did a version that uh, was recorded at, for a tribute to Neil Young thing. Again, he plays a kind of acoustic blues style uh, dobro. It's not a dobro, but it's the instrument he plays is basically a guitar, but he plays it like a, a dulcimer. He lays it across his lap, and he does a lot of strumming that way. And he's got a backup choir, three women who sing gospel harmonies. And so that's really good. And then I found, and this is the best, there's a young, um, I, don't take it the wrong way, a young rock chick hmm. from Asheville called Hannah Wickland. And she's a really dynamic performer. And she's got, you know, pre-Raphaelite hair, red tresses that go down to her waist. And she plays lead guitar. She's got a bassist and a drummer. That's it. And they play, and you can find it on YouTube. And it's just... It's so full of righteous rage and anger. It takes the song far beyond the original incident. So I spent a lot of time listening to that. Mm -hmm. and, and you're not, you're not um, as you were, fed up with it. You, you still have something, uh, you, you still crave it in a way. Sometimes, sometimes yeah, that happens. For yeah, yeah. It, it, because um, it's such a the guitar lilt is so the guitar hook is mesmerizing and the song is about something and it's about something i was a college student down the road in yellow springs ohio from kent on the day it happened and it's of all the events of the late 60s and early 70s that i lived through you know the demonstrations i went on the tear gas i inhaled whatever all, of all the things that happened, that's the one that sticks with me most, which is why I was very, very keen for the BBC to commission me to make the piece. And I was very pleased that they did, um, because as I found out, yeah. it had per deep personal meaning. And as I found out, a lot of, a lot of kids don't know about it, yeah. which I find amazing, <laughs> but they don't. And, and part of the documentary is... You know, an exploration and discussion with people who were shot, 
um, who lost family members, whose lives have been shaped in count, you know, to this day by the tragedy of which they were a part. And, you know, the, their own feelings uh, being disturbed that it has fallen from collective memory. Um, or there, many of them feel it was deliberately pushed out of collective memory because people, you know, the powers that be didn't want wanted to be remembered that the state, the federal, you know, the state, the government went, you know, to a protest by unarmed students with men carrying weapons of war and primed to fire them. And I did, you know, find some archive tape that makes it very clear that the, the young National Guardsmen were on the, the field at Kent State, primed and ready to shoot. So it was no surprise that some of them did. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I, you could you probably, I, I need to listen to this, this documentary. Uh, it, it sounds really great. Uh, I'm really pleased that you spent some time uh, doing that and, and um, uh, feeling the... Uh, still feeling the outrage, uh, which is important. That It's not something that uh, can easily be forgotten. It should not be forgotten. So um, come on to some books you're reading. Or, uh, are you doing anything um, that seems to be relevant in terms of its uh, either escape from, from this quarantine situation or feeling like you want to do more research and go more into the dark areas. <laughs> you, you're more of the escapist or, the, or uh, somehow the researcher. How do, how do you see yourself in this? Yeah. Well, you know, um, the arrival of coronavirus coincided with the publication of Hilary Mantel's third and final installment of her amazing trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. And The Mirror and the Light arrived by post at my desk the same day they closed down the schools. 900 pages. And it took three weeks to get through all 900. And I'm telling you, anyone who... Yeah. <laughs> it was the best way to just forget everything that was happening. Because you go, you're right back in... The, the days of Henry VIII inside the most extraordinarily imagined royal court. It makes you, I mean, she's such an amazing novelist. Not only can you appreciate her stylistic ability, but she genuinely makes the psychology of being, you know, the number one advisor to a the king an absolute monarch mm -hmm. makes you understand what that really means absolute someone who actually believes he is the nation yep. it's almost like you know and and, and you look at, at donald trump and oh, i was wondering yeah, yeah, you're gonna go there you know <laughs> he's he almost He's got the same delusions of grandeur, but Henry VIII was actually anointed in a time of when people believed in God, and people he had had holy oil put on his head, and in a sense, you are God on earth. You are his representative. 
and then there's everybody else. And I, I just found it the best way to get away, mm. best way out of um, worry about a great, the coronavirus situation. Great recommendation and uh, uh, nine hundred pages. That sounds awesome. It's it sort of you know I, I sort of know know of it. I know the trilogies. I started the first one. Uh, I have to admit, I failed to get through it all. I, it just was, I, I could appreciate it and admire it. And the prose is just incredibly good. Um, but it's just a length. Um, I, I have to be a long distance long. runner. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a genuine commitment. I, I, I think it's about, oh God, how many, how many, it's 15, it's, it's well north of 2,000 probably 2,200 pages, mm -hmm. all three volumes. Right. So it's a real commitment. Yeah. And, you know, I, he's a fascinating man, Thomas Cromwell, but um, I'm not entirely sure that anybody else um, would have thought he's worth, you know, 15 years of my life and, you know, but, but, 2,200 pages but, of, but, of a reader's life. Um, but it tells you that, that I, this, yeah, I mean, this is one person. This one personality is could could be a number of personalities that we could be fascinated by if we if we spend the time that, that Hillary Mantel did to imagine. I know, and, and and the funny thing, of course, is that um, you know a guy like Robert Carroll is what three or four volumes into writing about Lyndon Johnson, yes. he's and he can't finish. At least Hillary Mantel finished. Well, on that note, we are just going to finish the uh, conversation in the next episode, and hopefully you'll listen to it. Uh, I can't wait to have you back. Mm -hmm.